Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. As people encounter and learn more about the Orthodox Church, many, many people come to love what it believes and how it worships. They can quickly discern that orthodoxy is something very special among the various flavors of Christianity that they have experienced in their life. And of course, we as Orthodox Christians not only agree with them, but claim that it is the only fully authentic and complete version of the faith that there is. We would explain their immediate connection to the church because our faith faithfully reflects and bears forth Jesus Christ the Lord of all, who exemplifies what it means to be a human being who has lived in complete obedience to God. And who wouldn't want that? Yet at the same time, many of the same people who see the light of Christ find at least one ray emanating from it that burns just a little. Often it's some hot button social issue. Perhaps our church's stance on women's ordination legal abortion, or homosexuality. Or maybe it is a certain theological perspective, or indeed the purposeful lack of clarity around some real mystery about one of those theological points that they simply cannot accept. If surveys by Pew are any indication, contrary views from what the church teaches on some of those social issues are very unlikely to be confined just to seekers but are common, indeed majority viewpoints in some cases amongst Orthodox Christians, not just in the US, but around the world. So, should the church maintain its contrary view when a majority of its own members disagree with the church's view? Well, let's hop in a time machine for a few moments to get a little perspective. Let's set our dials to the fourth century and engage our flux capacitor with 1.21 gigawatts. At the time, a heresy, Arianism, which taught that the Son of God did not always exist, but was begotten within time by the Father. That therefore, Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. Arianism holds that the Son is distinct from the Father, that he was created and therefore subordinate to the Father. And at that time, this was a majority viewpoint in the church not just amongst parishioners, but amongst your rightly ordained Orthodox priests who would have been teaching this. In fact, Arius, whom after the, who the heresy is named after, was an Orthodox priest himself. He carried all the right credentials. And you might have been in his congregation and been a little concerned about what he was teaching, and I would hope you might have called up his bishop. But guess what? The bishop would have told you that Arius was right. So maybe you'd be able to take some comfort uh, when your bishop confirmed the Arian heresy as orthodox. This wasn't just something that happened for a few months or years, but for several generations. In fact, there was a time that this was the majority viewpoint, again, not just amongst parishioners, but amongst orthodox bishops and priests. But thanks be to God, Jesus will not let the gates of hell prevail against his church. Some stood firm against Arianism, and the most prominent we know about was St. Athanasius, and um, Mere Deacon, who defended the Orthodox faith 
that the son was homoousios with the father, meaning that he was the same in being, essence, everything that the father is, the son is. To make clear how prevalent the Arian view was, St. Athanasius carries the title Contra Mundum, against the world. And yet at the Council of Nicaea in 325, therein marched, or shall I say some limped in, 318 bishops some missing their eyes, their limbs, their tongues from the persecutions that preceded Constantine's legalization of Christianity. Many of their fellow Christians were dead. And together, those folks stood up against Arianism and worked together with the Holy Spirit and declared about a month, after about a month of debate on Arianism, that it was indeed St. Athanasius and his and the others that agreed with him's perspective that Arianism was not the view that had always been the Christian understanding. If the church was a democracy, then it would have fallen into heresy. Instead, the church is a monarchy where God is king, a theocracy. And we declare so each and every time we pray the Lord's Prayer together, thy kingdom come. And in the same pattern that the Orthodox Church has resolved any conflict since the Biblical Council of Jerusalem, in a conciliar fashion and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they there preserve the ancient and unchanging faith of the Church. I believe it's easy for us to look back in retrospect and say the choice was obvious at the Council of Nicaea, because we rely on Jesus Christ being the God, being God in every way so that every corner of our human nature, body, soul, will are redeemed through his saving acts. The God-man Jesus Christ ensures that we are united with God in an amazing communion with the divine, that our nature is able to rise to heaven and enter into the very throne room of the Father, that as St. Athanasius said, we are able to become everything by grace that God is by nature, theosis, an essential teaching of the Orthodox Church about our destination as human beings. And now returning back to the future, back to today, we have the additional context for understanding Jesus's warning in today's gospel. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. For many of the issues that face the church from the world, their arguments seem sound. Yet there's a long line of counter-arguments that, shall I say, show the church has heard it all before. Yet, as Americans, or maybe as people in general, we are ahistorical. In the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, some younger Americans wondered why they were the first to stand up against racism, much to the chagrin of their righteous parents and grandparents who had sit-ins at a Greenboro Woolworth had been a passenger on a freedom ride or marched with Martin Luther King or across a bridge in Selma, among many other acts of civil disobedience which helped establish the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I fear as Christians we are just as ahistorical, thinking somehow we are smarter, that we know God's will better than our apparently not so saintly ancestors. Instead, I fear that Satan has once again pulled the wool over our eyes, perhaps over our lupine, that is, wolfish eyes, 
making us believe that we are wiser about issue X, Y, or Z than the billions of Christians who have lived over the last two millennia. And after all, remember that a wolf in sheep's clothing is not obviously a wolf. We all know to avoid the wolves, and we can turn on our TV or pull up a YouTube video or any number of podcasts or anything else and find plenty of wolves. But a wolf in sheep's clothing is someone like your priest or your fellow Orthodox Christian who convinces you that the way of the world is right and the way of the church is wrong. And we have seen how it unravels Christian groups again and again because the church's stance on these issues may not seem to make sense in our modern world, and yet it's interwoven into the fabric of our understanding of who God is and what the ideal human being is. And Jesus has a strong warning for us today. He tells us that those wolves in sheep clothing are false prophets. It's a prophet. They, they are speaking for God. They claim, in this case, to be speaking for God, yet they are speaking for the fallen angels. And thanks be to God, Jesus doesn't leave us with that. He offers us a way to discern the right from the wrong. He tells us that we can recognize the false prophets by their fruits. But what does he mean? Perhaps he's talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that St. Paul enumerates in his letter to the Galatian church. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the context suggests something different, albeit related. The use of sheep imagery here is striking, as it's such a common, almost cliche metaphor for Christ. And when we look across his use of that Im imagery, we are nearly, if not always, the sheep. So are the wolves in sheep clothing someone else trying to look like us? Perhaps evil spirits? Yes, maybe. But I'm not aware of a place where the term prophet is being used for anyone but a person. And yet we see people, of course, in the Bible completely consumed by evil spirits. But again, when we look at this, this passage, in the context of it, it, it seems that it's talking about us as people. The gospel itself suggests that it was the case that we were consumed by evil spirits and that we are in part responsible for this. As Jesus fearfully says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did we not prophesy in your name, it says? Therefore... Their rejection shows that they were false prophets, who Jesus says he never knew, for they were workers of lawlessness. And if we look more broadly around this passage, we see just preceding this in the seventh chapter of St. Matthew, which we read today at morning prayer, the following. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So here again we see the sheep, the shepherd metaphor. The gate being that, 
of the sheepfold that we hear more explicitly about in St. John's Gospel. We must enter by the right way. And here Jesus tells us that that narrow way is what the fruit is that will distinguish those from the ravenous wolves who merely look like sheep. In that, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Likewise, immediately after today's gospel, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So everyone who hears and does these words of mine will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Bearing fruit is not something vaporous. It's something fleshy, something incarnate. Indeed, we call the good parts of the fruit its flesh, its meat, its carne. Bearing fruit isn't just receiving the, the rain of the word of God, nor is it sprouting some showy leaves or just growing tall. Bearing fruit is perpetuating life. It's developing the next generation. Bearing fruit isn't just about us, it's about, it's about the future. But it's not only about the future, because bearing fruit connects us to the past, because we are the fruit of our forefathers and foremothers in the church, who, who have generation after generation protected our faith from mutation and decay from the world around us. How? By not just hearing the words of Christ, but by preserving them in their deeds. Not by just wishing that others would do unto them, but doing so also unto them, even if such was not reciprocated. And should we worry if things are not reciprocated? No, for plants make lots of seed, just as Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower, that some of our seed, some of our fruit is going to fall on rocky ground, some on soil with thorns, some on good ground. So in the parable, two-thirds of what's spread fails, fails. But the other third that succeeds doesn't just make a third or even just three times to make up the losses, but it bears 30, 60, or 100-fold, at least 10 times what's needed to make up for the losses. And so my brothers and sisters, what does all this mean for us today, right now? Well, first, yes, this is a warning. A warning that Satan is at work directly in ourselves and in our ranks. He wants us to do his will rather than God's will. He wants us, especially as Orthodox Christians, to be professing, claiming it's God's will that is prophesying things that are contrary to the church, to better ensnare our brothers and sisters into Christ and to believing a false gospel. And second, while this is true, we have the cure the saving elixir, a sure shield against the devil, to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. Too many see our view on whatever it may be as contrary to loving our neighbor. Yet we can and do still love our neighbor, even if we disagree with their thinking or action on some particular point, whatever that issue might be. 
And when we love our neighbor as ourselves, we fully embrace St. John's words that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And St. Paul's words to Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Like Christ, we have to meet sinners, just like us, where they are. For the good news is, if Jesus didn't do that, where would any of us be? For we are sinners, indeed chief among them. If we can't admit that about ourselves and offer the same forgiveness that Christ gave us in our station, then we are indeed ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. We are indeed false prophets. We are in fact mere hearers and not doers. We are not walking in Christ's narrow path along his footsteps. If we cannot follow our fellow sinners, even if somehow we think their sins are worse than ours, along that narrow, fetid path littered by their sin into the sheepfold where our Savior watches over us and redeems us. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, not to allow for the normalization of deviance. It might be a term you've heard from some safety or corporate culture class more than in your churches but it nevertheless applies. The normalization of deviance is the process or tendency by which human beings in general let deviance from correct or proper behavior slowly and incrementally become normalized. For example, missing or misinterpreting or dismissing early warning signs. Such is completely normal human behavior. But we have to watch for it. And instead of normalizing the deviance, let us embrace that deviance with love as, our Christ, as Christ our Lord did. Not accepting it but nevertheless embracing it with love. He dined with sinners like you and me. He became like you and me in every way save one who never sinned. He never normalized the deviance, and yet he walked with it. He embraced it most dramatically when with those freely offered outstretched arms on the cross, he even died for it. So my brothers and sisters, let us discern those rays of light and truth emanating from the church, from Christ, our head, that burn our skin. And let us learn more about the church's perspective on those issues and how they are part of a whole that is interdependent on our entire faith. Let us be obedient and faithful to the church unless, as in the case of Arianism, the wolves have so taken over that it's clear that she herself has begun to teach things contrary to what she has always taught. And I am, of course, happy to discuss any issue or concern you have and, and to walk together with you lovingly and more deeply towards the church's view on that issue. And definitely, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That would make Satan very happy, of course for one tiny thing to keep you from walking the narrow way, but rather you stand firm in your confidence that all that light and warmth you see and feel should give you a reason to explore that little tiny bit of burn you feel from that odd ray. If able, be ready to explain to others why the church takes the viewpoint it does on certain common issues. And if you don't feel comfortable, have a trusted person that you can direct them to for open discussion. And in closing, on those things that we perceive as rough edges in the Orthodox faith, we must ask ourselves, are we accepting, even embracing something contrary to who we know God to be and thereby acting as a false prophet to those around us? 
Or are we, despite our differences, recognizing most especially our own, often more significant failings, the beam in our eye in today's uh, first reading from morning prayer? Recognize, are we recognizing those failings in accordance with, the God's, with God's revelation and his church's ongoing defense of that revelation while truly meeting and loving are all those around us with the same love that Christ, that God himself, met with all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.